This is UNS Talks, a podcast by the architecture and design firm UN Studio. The circular economy has become an extremely hot topic over the last few years. For those of us working in the built environment, we have a long road ahead of us. For our buildings and cities to become fully circular, they need to have several strategies associated with them throughout their whole construction supply chain and along their entire lifetime. To name just a few, they need to be designed in a durable, reusable and flexible way. They need to prioritise regenerative resources and use waste as a construction material. And of course, they need to make use of digital technology to ensure that they are used to the best of their capacity in the most energy efficient way. Based in Amsterdam, Circle Economy is a social enterprise that accelerates the transition to a circular economy. Their cities and built environment programmes have worked with cities like Amsterdam, Glasgow, Bilbao and the province of North Holland to help them make the circular leap. As such, we were very happy to host Ben Kubinga and Yoka Dufomo from Circle Economy to discuss circularity within the built environment and explain a little bit more about the work that they do. Enjoy! Today, indeed, we would like to talk uh, about the circular built environment. Uh, my name is Ben Kubinga. Yoka Dufourmont is uh, standing there. Um, we work for an organization that promotes the acceleration towards the circular economy, uh, circle economy. We're based here in Amsterdam. We were founded in 2012 by uh, Robert Jan van Ochtrop, uh, Herman Weifels, and Louise Vett because they saw th there was a big need to move towards circularity, like already started by the Ellen MacArthur Foundation in the UK somewhat earlier. So they started this, and our mission is to accelerate the transition to the circular, and circular economy by developing practical and scalable solutions. How we do that? We work with cities, and we work with businesses, and we focus on particular topics. And we ha in the past, we've started programs on textiles, uh, on cities, and Yoko will come back to that in a bit, uh, on design and on finance. And last year we also started working on the built environment and hence uh, us being here today and working with uh, players like UN Studio, the front runners uh, in this environment that really want to move us as society to a circular built environment. Now, the main focus in our work is around cities because we really see these as the main drivers of change because the, uh, the governmental level that they represent really uh, links both the national and regional ones with what happens on the ground. Mayors, mayors talk to their citizens, talk to the businesses. So we really see if we want to change something then this is the level where we need to operate. Uh, and especially also when you look at cities and, and these are probably not new numbers to you, um, this is also where the major consumption patterns, the major uh, forms of exponential growth are currently happening. So looking at the 50% of the global population already living in urban areas growing to 70 plus percent in 2050. Just to give an example, and especially of course in uh, the eastern part of the world in India and China where the mega cities are rising. The GDP Another example, 80% of this is generated in cities, so again, a reason to focus on these uh, areas. Two-thirds of the energy use is used in cities, and 70% of the global resources are here. So these, this is really the playground for us to find levers for change towards circularity. I don't know if you are familiar with this image, the slightly extended take-make-waste 
uh, summary of what our economy is currently doing, taking things out of the ground, sourcing it, refining it, then making products out of it, selling those. There's a use time, sometimes very short, sometimes very long, and then we basically lose things out of sight and we dump it, we incinerate it, we landfill it. This is the summary of the linear economy that we would like to change because we lose so much resources and value represented by these sources, resources that we can't continue the way we do. And if you look at how the economy and the world is growing, there's, we live in exponential times in terms of the GDP that we see growing, especially over the past decades, but also in terms of the resources that we need to, as a fundament for this prosperity in our society. And what we need to do is decouple, this is 2016, if you look up, we need to decouple this economic growth from the resource extraction that we currently have, this pattern, and we need to, to close this gap. And how do we do that? That is by making sure that we keep the value for as long as possible, not by simply recycling. What, when people talk about circular economy, often they think, oh, that's recycling, but don't we already do that? The built environment is a good example where the Netherlands says we recycle practically everything, but most of it is downcycled and ends up as rubble under the roads. And that's only the lowest form of cycling that you can imagine. What you need to do is move from that outer cycle, the outer loop, towards the inner loops. So making sure that what we make is maintained, that the lifetime is optimized and extended, that we reuse um, if there is an end to the first life cycle, refurbish, remanufacture, uh, renovate uh, if there's no other uh, solution, and then at the very end, if there's no other purpose for products and materials, then recycle it and make sure that if we can, we pump it back into the economy. And then maybe to come back to the very first step is that we have to make sure that we design things in such a way that we don't need all these resources in the next round. Now, a couple of practical elements that we see as critical to, for moving towards circularity. This is a summary of, uh, I think, about 20 frameworks that we analyzed that already exist uh, in terms of strategies to move towards circularity. And there's three on the left that you see that are directly related to materials. So prioritize regenerative resources, making sure that they're non-toxic, that they're cyclable, recyclable, um, that they, um, for instance, are more made out of bio-based uh, uh, sources so that they can indeed be regenerated naturally. The second one is the middle one. If you look at, I guess, the value hill, you could call it, uh, of resources in our economy to preserve and extend what is already made. So extend the lifetime or optimize the lifetime uh, for buildings of any products that we make. And then at the very end, if there's no inner loops possible anymore, then make sure that the outer loop is really valued as it should be. So really use waste as a resource. And then we have four enablers to allow for these loops to happen. Uh, one is rethinking the business model. Think, for instance, of sharing our assets uh, instead of buying everything individually. Uh, think of Spotify, or maybe not think of Spotify, 
Um, I will come back to that. Um, but think uh, also of product service systems. Um, I don't know if that's a familiar term for you. Um, so rather than selling a product, selling a service. And recently, for instance, with Fairphone, we looked at, do you know Fairphone? The sustainable phone developed in the Netherlands. There's a startup that developed this um, as a concept to think of how can we actually sustainably source our materials for the products that we uh, use and really think back, looking at where do these materials come from, who is involved in making them, and do we actually need as many materials for those products. So it's a modular phone um, that really serves as um, a concept to tell this story about circularity as well. And what we looked at with them is how can we also develop it as a service, because then the producer remains the owner of that product and sells the service of calling people or sending messages or doing other things with. So that's a model that you will see coming back also in the built environment more and more. Design for the future in terms of uh, designing the product, designing a building, but also designing the system to make sure that if you have a product that is fully, say, cradle to cradle, that it's not only fit for disassembly, that it's made out of non-toxic materials, but that there is also a system of stakeholders behind that make sure that it comes back to either the producer or uh, other players that can actually re retake the value out of these products. Incorporating digital technology, uh, that is one of the main enablers of circularity. Um, think of material passports that I'm sure you've come across already. Um, but think of all kinds of platforms to trade in uh, materials, uh, Internet of Things to make sure that we use our assets as efficiently as possible, etc. And then lastly, but not uh, uh, the least, is to collaborate. And that's something that is new for everyone, especially in the construction sector, to, to learn is how to co collaborate with everyone in the value chain to make sure that we design a system that allows for materials to come back and that their value is retained. And then coming back to this exponential growth of materials, what we look at, um, and the use of resources, what we look at is what type of materials are used for different sectors. Um, and if you then zoom in actually on what is consumed at the global level, this is maybe a slightly complicated figure, uh, but this shows what goes through the economy in a year time throughout the whole globe, um, starting from four big material, material categories, minerals, ores, fossil fuels, and biomass, and how they are then going through the economy, through different phases of taking, processing, producing, and then eventually providing it to meet the needs that we have in our society. And we use more than 90 gigatons of materials, of which a very big part goes to the construction sector, and then we cycle a tiny little bit in that, 88.4 gigatons, coming down to just over 9% of the materials that we consume. So we have a massive circularity gap to fill if we want to keep the value and these materials in the economy as such. That is a good question. Um, I would say partly uh, the bio-based materials that go back uh, through a direct loop and then in terms of recycled materials, I think it's mostly metals that are easily cycled that are, if they're not polluted, then they can easily be uh, melted back into the original material and then put back. One that is not as easily 
Cycled Bank is concrete at the moment, although maybe you've seen the recent developments of Smart Crusher and others that allow for actually breaking down the materials again to open up this completely new market in a way. And then if you look at what the construction, construction sector itself consumes, then it's almost half of these 90 gigatons that we consume. So 40.1 gigatons, mostly in terms of minerals and ores, is consumed by the built environment. So for us, a major reason also to focus on this sector. Besides flows, um, flows of materials going into the economy. Another thing, or flows going into the economy, but also going out, I mentioned the 9.1% of circularity. Another thing is what is actually already there. What is the stock that we have in our built environments? And this is a recent, well, a new field also of studies to see what we actually have as an urban mind that we can, can tap into if we think of new buildings or renovations. What are the materials and products that are available or that will become available in the coming five, three to five years, let's say, for new projects. And what can we actually tap into instead of looking for new resources? And this is uh, a study by Stefan and uh, Aristide Atanasiadis, if I pronounce it well, uh, done uh, with the University of Melbourne, uh, looking at what the material stock is uh, in Melbourne, looking at concrete, steel, glass, and also in terms of energy. Um, so this is uh, a type of information that we can use much better to predict also what we can build in the future. And then if you look at what happens at the global scale, I know UN Studio is not only active in the Netherlands but worldwide, amongst others in China, then you see that there's different trends happening. One is if you take for instance in Europe that we have a built environment stock that is already quite mature. We have a growth of 1%, I think, in floor space increase every year. So we don't expect much uh, to grow. The circularity of the built environment is uh, just above 10%. So it's bigger than um, the worldwide average, but it still, it still leaves a massive circularity gap. Um, so the focus here should be more on maintaining the stock with what we have and cycling better than uh, for instance, what you see happening in China, where you have a, uh, a building stock that is roughly the same as in Europe, but the expected growth is, of course, massive. And if you look what over the past three years, how much concrete China used compared to the US, they used uh, in three years more than the US has used in their entire existence. So the, the resource, resources consumption of the region is massive and will grow even in the coming decades. So we need to make sure that what goes in is minimized and has little, uh, slower or smaller impact by designing in a different way, by using different materials. Uh, and then, as in Europe, we have to make sure that what comes out is reused again as well. And if you look at China, the average building lasted, I think, 20 to 30 years. So there is uh, an opportunity as well to tap into, into those resources while also designing things and I think you already do that for a slightly longer lifetime than 20 to 30 years, but rather 50 to 100 years, with in mind not only that period, but also the period after, so that you design for 
repurposing, for instance. And this is a good example of what you've been doing in Europe uh, already with uh, the booking office where you uh, reused uh, what was already there. So the, the, pil the, pi <coughs> the piles uh, of the foundation were integrated into the design. Um, so we actually preserve that value because often what happens now is if you have a, a new build project, the piles will just stay there, will have no extra function but just staying in the ground. And if you can actually put a weight in this case literally to it, um, then well, you save money and you add value to the building. So this is one of the examples of what we need to do, especially in Europe. While this is an example of uh, using different types of resources, so the inflow of resources that happens in China and raffles uh, in the shopping mall, where you use bamboo to integrate into the building. And I think that's a, a nice example of a regenerative resource that does not only um, use less CO2 to be produced, but it also captures, it also, it, it also forms a, a type of sink for carbon. So the emissions that are generated are lower. So this is something that we'll also see coming back in a bit uh, that you can think of in terms of approaching the di two different regions. Now, before handing over the mic, I would like to step out for just one second. Is, uh, do you know this, these four words? Does, does the, do you recognize this from any book you've, re you've read recently? Uh, I'll read the last sentence of this book to you. Um, there is grandeur in this view of life with its several powers. Having been originally breathed into a few forms or into one, and that whilst the, this planet has gone cycling on to the fixed law of gravity, from so simple a beginning, endless forms most beautiful and most wonderful have been and are being evolved. Does that ring any bells? Still nothing. I'm, I'm a biologist by training. Uh, this was Charles Darwin, The Origin of Species, and the last sentence of his book where he summarized all his findings. And I think this is looking at the work we do and looking also at the work you do could serve as, an, as a good inspiration because what I think you want to do is create new forms of buildings, um, but they also need to be integrated into our world into, in, in a non-toxic, into a contributing way to the ecosystem that we're part of. So I would like to leave you with this for now and Yoko will take over with more practical examples as well. Absolutely. Um, I think in order to, uh, to capitalize on, on this inspiration and actually use it, let's look at some practical examples. What can we do? What can we do better? Um, and how can we do it? Um, and in order to do that, um, let's take it from a slightly different perspective. Because the image that Ben just presented talks about um, how there's different trends in, in building stocks and how that building stocks evolve. Um, uh, in different parts of the world. Now, slightly simplified, um, a building consists of a couple of layers. And these layers have different characteristics, and these characteristics make for us having to use them differently and having to intervene in these layers differently. Roughly speaking, a building consists of stuff, systems, 
and structure. Apart from these three layers, that building is then implanted in its surroundings. If we look back at the different evolutions in building stock, we also see that that means that we intervene in different layers of those buildings. So with the example of the booking office and using the existing foundations as a counterweight for the new building, um, we can see that we actually make sure that whatever was structurally there, that we could reuse it. And this holds for the rest of the European context as well. Because our, grow, uh, our building stock is matured a lot already, it's not going to grow a whole lot. The elements that live longest will have to use for longest and we'll have to make, um, make use of them for another, for another long time, even though maybe demands and requirements might shift. And so that's what you can see on the top right side, is that if we make use of the existing building stock, let's look at the inner layers of that building and how we can intervene with minor interventions in those inner layers in order to ensure that we can keep using the longer living structural layers. In a different context, for example, the Chinese context, where we see that the, the, the building stock is, is really skyrocketing, um, we pay attention to, to more layers because also the structural layer is going to be renewed, is going to be built extra. Now, apart from structural and, 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 the, and the inside layers, there's two more. There's also systems and site. And these, we really, shouldn't, we, sh we really shouldn't forget them. We really shouldn't lose them out of sight because they're very important too. Why are systems important in a circular built environment? If we look at the carbon footprint of a building, roughly half of it happens in the construction phase and roughly half of it during the use phase. And how can we impact that carbon footprint of a building in the use phase is by making sure that it is used efficiently. So we can then look at energy systems, at water systems, etc. Why are the surroundings important? Why is the site important? Not only do we want our building, our project, not to have a negative impact on the surroundings, but we actually want it to contribute positively. So let's take a look at um, one, or two, uh, one or two examples. If we want to have a positive impact on the surroundings, that means that we preserve what's there, preserve what's in these surroundings, and also maximize and optimize um, what's there. This is an example from the uh, Raffles, uh, Raffles City project, where 30% uh, of the outdoor space um, became, became green space. Now, this was a, a requirement from an urban planning, uh, urban planning point of view, and so that's a very interesting starting point. But really always take into account these surroundings, how can we not only capitalize on them, but how can we positively uh, contribute to them. In a different example, back in Amsterdam, we already spoke about it quite briefly, um, the booking offices is how can we make it function as efficiently as possible and making use of resources as effectively as possible during the use phase. And this is quite um, the straightforward example where um, the studio has thought of covering the, um, the roof surface with uh, solar panels in order to generate energy. And then we even went through the effort um, as, as to saying that even though the program of that roof surface slightly changed and we actually want to inhabit a significant, uh, a, a significant share of it, we're going to go and, and look for different roofs uh, where we can indeed then fulfill the promise of, of having enough so surface of uh, solar power generation. Now we talked about 
prioritizing regenerative and non-toxic resources over finite and toxic resources. We talked about preserving and extending uh, the resources, the products and the materials that we already have. And we talked about valorizing waste streams as a, as a resource. Now those are core circular economy strategies, but we need more. We need those core circular economy strategies to be accelerated, to be scaled up, and eventually to be mainstreamed. And in order to do so, so we need a couple of key enablers. Ben already briefly mentioned them. There's designing for the future, um, which UN Studio already quite literally does. Um, there's rethinking the business model. So how do we actually rethink the way we generate revenue in our economy and in our society in order to enable circular uh, business? And we need to incorporate digital technology because digital technology enables us to share the information and the data that is necessary um, to capture value from resources. These enablers are quite particular. And if we go back to the building layers from just now, one of these characteristics that I was speaking about was their lifetime, right? The lifetime of these different layers is very different and is very particular to each of these layers. And we see that the inner layers don't last as long as the outer layers. And the site, the surroundings are forever. That means that we have to handle them differently and that means that we have to intervene in them differently. In the circular economy, that means that we can use our enablers differently and we can capitalize on different enablers based on the lifetime of the product or the resource that we're dealing with. Looking at the structural layer, the structural layer has a very long lifetime, or at least has the potential for a very long lifetime. Why does it only have the potential for, the very for a very long lifetime? Things can happen, calamities can happen, but also as a society, we tend to ev evolve way faster than our materials do, or than our buildings do. That means that if we want to keep using on it, if we want to keep capitalizing on that potential lifetime of that structure, we have to do something with it. And in the circular economy, we can then design for the future. Why can we design, why can we design for the future? We can not only design for cyclability, we can design for, for materials to be harvested again from existing buildings. We can design for entire building components and building modules to be harvested again. And that means that if, even if our demand or requirement or ask for a certain site changes, that doesn't mean that we have to discard everything that is already there. That maybe we can add bits and pieces. And even of the bits and pieces that we take away, we might be able to use them somewhere else. This is, a, this is an example of Finch buildings. They make modular designs um, and modular quite big and quite small, both on the component level, but also on the spaces level. The next, ex the next example is in the systems layer. Systems and stuff tend to have a shorter lifetime than structures. That means that they carry a different potential. The example here is an elevator. Um, this elevator um, by, by Mitsubishi, they don't follow um, uh, the traditional pay to buy. They follow the pay to use system. 
That means it's a product service system and we pay to use something, we pay for the service of something rather than for the object of, uh, of something. It means that the owners of this building, they don't pay for the elevator, but they pay for the users and the inhabitants of this building to move up and down. Why is this important for the circular economy? It's important because by paying for use, we incentivize producers to create something and to manufacture something that lasts long. And even if it does break down, we incentivize them to design something that is easy to repair. And this then contributes to the fact that we're using less resources, that there's less demand for resources. Why is this a high potential in the systems and the stuff layer? Because those have a shorter lifetime. As you can imagine, in the structural layer, if we're talking about multiple centuries, we soon run into problems such as ownership, if we look at these new business models. And the third one is a surrounding, and, and here, very briefly, we can say that digital technology is a key enabler. As an example, uh, uh, this, is, this is Multiplicity. This is a uh, platform developed by Metabolism of Cities. Um, and the platform aims to make use of urban data. Because indeed, on the, on the level bigger than the building, so on the neighborhood level, on the site level, the neighborhood level, the urban level, the biggest challenge in the transition to the circular economy is that we just don't have enough information. As we were talking to one of the architects of the booking project here in Amsterdam, we heard that indeed, there are some old foundations there that we can make use of, but really we have to start digging to know what's in there, to know what's under the ground. And this is a very classic story. This is, um, we, we build a lot of things, uh, but, but we don't necessarily always know what's in these buildings. And if we want to make use of what's in these buildings, how are we going to do that if we don't know? Especially regarding rules and regulations. Try and get something through an urban planning department if you're going to say, well, it's going gonna, it's gonna to depend on what we find. So, so, so those are one of the, or that's one of the, one of the, one of the key challenges in a, in, in a circular built environment that digital technology can solve. We can map the urban mine. We can tag materials so that whoever comes after us knows exactly what's in a building and what's not. And there's one more, because the sharp spirits may, t may have noticed that we only covered six elements, and here, this, here is the seventh one. And this is about collaboration for joint value creation. Now, in a circular economy, collaboration is key. There is a huge amount of feedback loops and feedback systems and take-back systems and reverse logistics, etc., etc., that we have to install in order to keep the resources in our economy that are already there. In order to do that, we need to collaborate, and we need to structurally embed that collaboration and those feedback loops in everything that we do. A quick example is a, a because there's multiple, but a value chain of, the, of construction in the Amsterdam metropolitan area. And you can, you, can look at the, you can look in detail and, and follow the different arrows, and the different arrows are the different paths that materials travel. And so materials can be harvested um, from the dismantling of a certain project, and they can be reused in a certain other project before they're being recycled. But maybe they can't directly be reused, and they first have to be stored um, in a material bank, and then can be reused. 
These are the arrows that the, or these are the lines that the resources travel. Then think of the lines that the information travels, that the data travels, that the people travel. Collaboration is key. Why is, it, is this example interesting to look at? Because we're in the Amsterdam metropolitan area. We're in a highly, highly urbanized um, region here. And that means that there's a high density of pretty much everything. There's high density of buildings. There's a high density of people. There's a high density of knowledge and data. And because of that high density, we believe that cities are the key inflection point for innovation and change and for the transition to the circular economy. And, and we don't only think that. <laughs> this has actually been confirmed in literature as well. Um, on the screen, you can see a couple of advantages of the circular economy in cities. Um, the Ellen MacArthur Foundation has recently calculated that the transition to a circular economy in Chinese cities can reduce um, fine particle pollution by 50%, can uh, reduce uh, greenhouse gas emissions by 25%, can reduce congestion by 50%, and can create profits for households and businesses of up to $9 trillion. There's a lot of advantages to the circular economy, particularly within the high density of cities. And that's also why at Circular Economy we work with cities, we collaborate with cities, with each and every one of them, in their own transition towards circularity, but also across cities, because that's another element of collaboration. We need to share that knowledge and we need to share those experiences. And with this network, that's how we try to contribute it within circular economy as well. Back to back to here, because we've been, we've been kind of zooming out, right, from, from very particular projects here to a couple of other examples to cities and to, and to global networks. So let's get back to practice here, let's get back to challenges and opportunities that we see here. Let's indeed do that. Um, starting with client focus, one of the things that we understood in talking with you, with a couple of architects among you, in the projects that we also highlighted in this presentation, is that Clients have often no clue what circularity is about. Uh, they have no particular need to move towards circularity. Um, they, if you talk about secondary materials, then they, that raises more questions than you can answer. So you are, well, it's easy to give up in that sense. So it's, it's quite a, a barrier to, to take if you want to be a front-runner architect in this world, uh, promote circularity but you bump into clients that are like, yeah, but we just want a safe building with good materials that have been proven to be effective. So, so why, um, why, why should we do this? Um, I guess that's a, one of the big challenges. Data availability, as Joko mentioned. Uh, what is uh, available in terms of materials in the urban mine? What do we actually know about the sites that we want to transform? Uh, and there's also the financial implications, of course that are related to that, how do we get the data? The market, I can imagine that um, for you it's quite, or for an architect in general, it's quite hard to know what's available, what materials uh, are actually considered circular, what can you use, what is available in the region that you want to build, and, and if you found something, is it affordable? Can you actually 
integrate into a project that, and the, keep the client happy. And then the rules and regulations, um, are they fit for it? Is there actually, um, are there um, barriers in that sense that prevent you from using certain materials? Um, I don't know if you have examples, Joka, to add to this. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, um, uh, the, the, the built environment is a, is a heavily, heavily regulated environment, right? Because as <clears throat> as architects and engineers, you carry an enormous responsibility of providing safe and healthy buildings um, to to their users. And that's why this environment is so heavily regulated. Thankfully, so at the same time, these regulations may work adversely. Um, in the transition towards a circular economy, they may have unintended consequences. And those unintended consequences often have to do with the fact that we don't necessarily know what's already out there in the urban mine. If we, don't, if we do know, we don't necessarily know when it's going to become available. If it becomes available and it's available too soon, then where are we going to store it? If it becomes available and, if, and it's a structural element, how are we going to prove that this element is still structurally sound? All of these things are, are defined in public policy. And, and so it's a big, big challenge for governments as well to see how can we, how can we on the one hand, deregulate or, or deregulate in, um, uh, in the sense that it's beneficial for the circular economy without harming or touching on the safety um, and the environmental requirements that we already have. I guess a good example of that is given by Amsterdam that leaves space, for instance, where uh, the Kovo is located in, a, in the north of Amsterdam to actually experiment with this where there's lower regulations um, that enable innovations with materials uh, with different types of buildings and that's a lesson that is not only valid for the Netherlands but it also serves as an example for other cities around the world. Now let's look at opportunities the other side. Uh, one of them is stakeholder collaboration that we have addressed or already extensively. But one of the things that I think uh, is an opportunity for you as well is to engage more with the client and, get, and engage more with the rest of the value chain. Make sure that you uh, know, for instance, how demolishers work, how recycling works uh, in uh, the city that you're active in. And ask, for instance, if you have a design that you think is completely fit for disassembly, that it's uh, nicely modular, made out of materials that you know are recyclable, but do you actually know for sure that in 50 years' time the materials and the products that you've developed will be recycled or will be, will be reused? So do you know if demolishers locally uh, will be able to create a market or reuse it or resell it for new building products? Um, so I think that offers plenty of uh, opportunities. Uh, flexible and modular des design uh, already mentioned, um, but I think uh, looking at the portfolio of projects that I've come across in, in uh, the past couple of days at least, there's uh, opportunities to improve on that. And not only in terms of modularity, but also in terms of uh, repurposable, repurposability, if that's a word at all, uh, of buildings. Not only looking at uh, flexibility in terms of um, changing the economic value of a building um, from a traditional perspective, but really thinking what happens in 30 years' time when the, the demands of the users will have changed dramatically that you can't predict yet, but where you can already integrate part in the building, uh, in the main structure, a way of reorganizing things and changing a shopping mall into a hospital, for instance, or a hospital into apartment lots, which is not the current demands 
of the client, but which will uh, probably be very handy in the growing cities that you're working in. Uh, helping the client focus, Joke? Um, absolutely. We, uh, it's, it's both a challenge and an opportunity, isn't it? Because if the client doesn't focus on circularity, how on earth are we going to build it in? How on earth are we going to build room in, in, in the budget and in the timelines to implement circularity? At the same time, Working, working with cities in, in, in the middle of their transition or at the very start of their transition to the circular economy, there is a lot of awareness already out there as well. And there is a lot of ambition and, 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 and goodwill and, and, and motivation for the circular economy out there in cities all around the world. But then we see them struggling with how. And, and, so, and so the opportunity here lies in, lies in entering that dialogue and entering that dialogue like we're, we're also looking to how but let's see together how we can indeed in, indeed implement um, uh, those circular solutions so both opportunity and challenge fourth point uh, learning from the experience you already have because we found out that there's already quite a lot happening uh, within the organization often teams are not aware of what's happening and where there's already quite a few lessons learned at the same time it seems like you are a front runner in terms of sharing information and data on the projects that you do. So I think there, there's a, a major opportunity that is already at hand to, to use. Um, other elements, uh, not only learning from experience within your own team, but also talk, talking to the players, your key partners in projects, engineers, uh, developers that also have these ambitions and make sure you sit together and learn faster than you can do on your own material focus and eventually as uh, uh, exactly the the material focus um, circular economy has been around for a long time and it may not have been called circular economy for for as long as it has existed but it has been around for a long time and so has sustainability and we see that you in studio in your work you focus a lot on this this is this is this is this is um, um, uh, yeah, a, key, a key point of focus. And then what you also see is that um, um, certain fields are further evolved than others. And in that sense, the, the field of materials and resources is an incredible opportunity. Because every time um, um, you, you, you design a building, you have to keep into account that even though 50% of the carbon footprint is, happens during the in-use phase, half of the carbon footprint of any, any building, or, or, or average building at least, um, happens during its construction phase. So really looking at the footprints of our materials, the embedded, the, the, the embedded carbon, for example, all of the effort and the supply chains that go before those materials is a key opportunity here. Um, and then we doubled it out with making use of the urban mine, because this is a challenge that we are all Focus, uh, faced with. There is a lot out there. There is an incredible amount of resources out there that we don't have to mine from mines, but we have to mine them from cities. We just don't always know how to yet, but it's an opportunity. And on that note, um, it's, it's good to say that we're all in this transition towards the circular economy. It's a systems change, and we live in a global system. So the change needs to happen globally. However, we can act on multiple levels. We can act globally, but we can also act on a city level. We said that the high-density 
city and, and urbanized areas carry a lot of potential, so we can also act at the city level. But any system change requires personal change. And so this is a call for everyone as well, in everyone's own personal practice, to apply circular economy pr principles because the systems change requires personal change. And that's it from this edition of UNS Talks. To learn more about the work that Circle Economy do, you can catch them on their website at circle-economy.com. You can also read their research in their knowledge hub, Circle Lab, that's circle-lab.com. There you can read case studies, learn about different sectors, and learn about design strategies that you can consider when designing your next building. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to UNS Talks on SoundCloud, iTunes, Podbean, or your preferred podcast provider. Until next time.